Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We're launching a new series here in 2023 called Lost Treasure Legends, and this is the first of many interesting episodes packed with history and legend. As we all know, legends take many forms. Legends of buried or missing treasure are my favorites. Sometimes treasure legends are unproven, sometimes they're confirmed as actual lost objects, and sometimes they're partially confirmed, such as the treasure of the Incas, which we'll get around to in this series. The Twin Sisters sounds like a missing person story, or maybe a dream date night, or for sure a good beginning to a Toby Keith bar song, but these two sisters were real heavyweights, actually cannons, the two cannons that were a huge factor in the winning of the Battle of San Jacinto, which won the state of Texas her independence back in 1836. They've been missing for over 150 years, and there is a wealth of legends circling around their disappearance and possible resting place. To Texans, these cannons are the holy grail of Texas independence, and the search continues round the clock. To the finder would go the laurels of the state of Texas, and if nothing else, would get you a free draft or two in any pub in Texas, and probably box seats to the sports arena of your choice. As we go forward, sometimes it might seem like we're repeating a story or a clue to the location of the missing cannons, but you'll find that each story and each new clue brings more tantalizing information, right down to the very end. I hope you enjoy this hunt as much as I did. You'll find some very well-known people still involved in the search today. You'll also find that there were actually two sisters who dedicated the guns and became uniquely attached to them. And there was a man named Disney, whose brother was killed by Santa Ana at Goliath, and who helped finance the building of the Twin Sisters in Cincinnati. A lot of interesting history surrounds these guns. Here is the reason why the people of Texas have so much reverence for the Twin Sisters. We have covered the Texas War of Independence in previous episodes, but this story needs a few paragraphs so you can see the whole picture without having to recall the events that led to their independence from Mexico. The Texas Revolution, also called the Texas War of Independence, was fought from October of 1835 to April of 1836. The revolution was caused by the refusal of the Texian people, meaning people who migrated into and called themselves Texan, as well as the Tejanos, meaning Mexicans living in present-day Texas, all of whom shaped under the rule of Mexican government enforced by the cruel Santa Ana and his troops. What started the war was when Santa Ana and his troops ordered the town of Gonzales to give up their one cannon. That was October 2, 1835. The Mexican authorities ordered the people of Gonzales to hand it over, and the 18 men defending Gonzales said, Come and take it, which, as you can imagine, sparked a conflict. As an aside, that come and take it slogan has its own history, which I'll share in just a few minutes. This tension between the Mexican government and the Tejanos and the Texians wasn't new. It had been going on for almost 10 years. Mexico had fought for and won its independence from Spain in 1821 and wanted to exert its authority north of the Rio Grande, which it felt entitled to. More skirmishes took place until March 6, 1836, when the Alamo fell to Santa Ana, who ordered that no quarter be given to its 189 defenders. A few weeks later, 400 more Texans under the command of Colonel Fannin were surrounded and then surrendered, and Santa Ana ordered all these disarmed prisoners to be killed on the spot. This happened at Goliad, 
One of those slaughtered men was named Disney, probably a distant relative of Walt, as all the Disneys were from Ireland, and this man's family would exact its revenge by means of financing the building of the twin sisters' cannons. That story to come. The two huge losses to the Texas fighters for independence left only General Houston and 900 men to fight Santa Ana's thousands of Mexican regulars. But because of the slaughters at the Alamo and Goliath, these men were mad enough to take on any army. But Houston purposely avoided a number of battles because the odds didn't favor him, and he refused to risk the last army in Texas on poor odds. Finally, his chance came in April 1836 near Lynch's Ferry on the San Jacinto River. Thanks to Houston's scouts, he was able to attack when Santa Ana's men were having their midday rest, and that's where the twin sisters come in the picture. The twin sisters very nearly were unable to connect with Houston, but they finally did. Here's what happened. The two cannon had undergone quite an ordeal to reach Houston's army, having been shipped down the Mississippi to New Orleans, in crates labeled as hollowware, which is defined as tableware that forms a vessel. A very innocent way to fill out the packing order, which wouldn't raise an eyebrow if spies were watching boat shipments, and they were. William Bryan, an agent of the Republic of Texas in New Orleans, took official possession of the guns on March 16, 1836. From New Orleans, the guns were placed on the schooner Pennsylvania and taken to Brazoria. The cannons received the name Twin Sisters at Brazoria from the twin daughters of Dr. Charles Rice, who escorted, knowingly or not, the cannons aboard the Pennsylvania when it arrived in Texas. So there really were twin sisters. After several unsuccessful attempts to get cannons to the Texas Army under Sam Houston, which was retreating toward the Sabine before the forces of General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the twins finally reached Houston's army at their camp on the Brazos at Bernardo Plantation on April 11, 1836. All that took some doing as Houston was moving fast, so fast that his men were convinced that he was running from the fight. But the twin sisters reached their intended destination, and a 30-man artillery corps was immediately formed to serve as the guns, the only artillery with the Texas Army, and placed under the command of Lieutenant Colonel James Clinton Neal. Only nine days later, the twin sisters saw their first action during a skirmish between the armies of Houston and Santa Ana on April 20th. In this fight, Neal was wounded, and commanded the guns passed to George W. Hockley. The next day, April 21, 1836, saw the Battle of San Jacinto. That afternoon, near the banks of Buffalo Bayou, the Texas Army struck at Santa Ana's unsuspecting troops. The guns, via rawhide ropes, were pulled with difficulty to within several hundred yards of the Mexican breastworks. Their first shots were fired at a distance of 200 yards, and their fire, as well as their excellent aim, was credited with helping to throw the Mexican force into confusion and significantly aiding the infantry attack. During this battle, the twins fired handfuls of homemade grape shot, as this was the only ammunition the Texans had for the guns. In 1878, John M. Wade provided an account of the grape shot they used. He wrote, Arrived at Harrisburg, we found the place reduced to ashes, but finding some old tin and debris at a mill, we improvised grape and canister shot by filling ten cases with screw nuts and other small pieces of iron, and by cutting bar lead into pieces about three-quarters of an inch in length and sewing them together into small bags of bed ticking. On the 20th of April, the first shot was fired from the twin sisters, loaded with our homemade grape. At San Jacinto, 
after the twin sisters let loose, Houston's men charged the Mexican position, screaming, Remember Goliath, and remember the Alamo, and the fight began. 630 Mexicans were killed, and 730 taken prisoner, compared to nine Texans killed. Note 730 men taken prisoner by Houston's forces, who with one word from their commander would have slaughtered all of Santa Ana's men, just as Santa Ana had done twice to their brothers. The difference between Santa Ana and Houston? Houston wasn't a cold murderer like Santa Ana. And Santa Ana, coward that he was, escaped on horseback, but was found the next day wearing a shawl he had found in an empty house. I've never understood this, but Santa Ana spent a very short time in an American prison and was later released, American blood on his hands notwithstanding. He was given full respect as a diplomat and became the eighth president of Mexico from 1853 to 1855. Now that we've established the history of the twin sisters, we're left with answering the question, what happened to them? But before we go on, I did promise I would give you a little history on the slogan, Come and Take It. Come and Take It is an historic slogan, first used in the year 480 B.C. in the Battle of Thermopylae by Spartan King Leonidas I as a defiant answer and last stand to the surrender demanded by the Persian army. Now here's the story of the Come and Take It cannon in 1835 at the Battle of Gonzales during the Texas Revolution. In early January 1831, Green DeWitt wrote to Ramon Musquiz and requested armament for defense of the colony of Gonzales. This request was granted by supplying a Spanish-made six-pounder bronze cannon on the condition it be returned when asked for, the colony also having a much smaller one-pounder cannon. And when we say one-pound or six-pound, that's the size of the ball that the cannon fires. James Tumlinson, Jr. signed for receipt of the six-pounder cannon on March 10, 1831 in Bexar. At the minor skirmish in 1835 known as the Battle of Gonzales, the first land battle of the Texas Revolution, a small group of Texans successfully resisted the Mexican forces to seize the lone cannon after the Texans had refused to return it when asked. As a symbol of defiance, Carolyn Zumwalt and Evelyn DeWitt, young women from Gonzales, made a flag containing the phrase, Come and take it. In Spanish, Ven y tomalo, along with a black star and a representation of the cannon that they'd been loaned four years earlier by Mexican officials. This was the same message that was sent to the Mexican government when they told the Texans to comply with the loan condition and return the cannon. The Texan refusal to do so led the Mexican attempt to regain the cannon using military force. By the way, the original flag, now another lost Texas treasure, was lost shortly after the battle. Wouldn't you love to find that historical piece? What happened to the twin sisters after the treaties is debated, but we do have some pretty strong clues along the way, and we'll share that right after this sponsor message. And now back to our story. Historians, archaeologists, and treasure hunters debate on a number of aspects regarding the cannons, including their design, type, iron or bronze, caliber, four or six pounder, boundary of fabrication, Hawkins and Tatum, or Eagle Ironworks, the origin of the Twin Sisters moniker, where they were used, and where they disappeared. We'll answer every one of those going forward. The earliest and most credible primary source of their name, origin, and role comes from a letter by President of the Republic of Texas, David G. Burnett, 92 days after the Battle of San Jacinto. 
It was written on July 22, 1836, and published in the Telegraph and Texas Register on Tuesday, August 30, 1836. Gentlemen, two beautiful pieces of hollowware, in quotes, lately presented to us, through your agency, by the citizens of Cincinnati, as a free will offering to the cause of human liberty, were received very opportunely, and have become conspicuous in our struggle for independence. Their first effective operations were in the memorable field of San Jacinto, where they contributed greatly to the achievement of a victory not often paralleled in the annals of war. I doubt not their voices will again be heard, and their power be felt in the great and interesting cause to which they are dedicated by your liberality, and in the advancement of which we are so arduously engaged. To you, gentlemen, and to the citizens of Cincinnati, who have manifested so generous a sympathy in our cause, I beg leave to tender the warmest thanks of a people who are contending for their liberties and their lives, against a numerous nation of semi-savages, whose cruelty is equaled only by their want of spirit and military prowess. Should our enemy have the temerity to renew his attempt to subjugate our delightful country, the voices of the twin sisters of Cincinnati will yet send their reverberations beyond the Rio Grande, and carry unusual terror into many a Mexican hamlet. Texas has no desire to extend her conquests beyond her own natural and appropriate limits. But, if the war must be prosecuted against us, after abundant evidence of its futility has been exhibited to the enemy and the world, other land than our own must sustain a portion of its ravages. Permit me, gentlemen, to tender to you and to your fellow citizens who have rendered Texas much efficient aid, assurances of my profound esteem, your obedient servant, David G. Burnett. So Burnett's letter pretty well seals the origin of the cannon's manufacture, Cincinnati. And now here's the story of how they got their name. This story comes from Elizabeth Mars Staff in a letter to the editor of the Houston Daily Post on August 24, 1897, 61 years after the Battle of San Jacinto. It starts, This Twin Sisters. To the editor of the Post, Carantua Bay, Jackson County, Texas, August 24th. Some time ago, you said in your paper that you would like to know where the twin sisters were and how they received their names. I, being an old veteran's daughter and wife, can tell you. They were named for myself and twin sister Elizabeth and Eleanor Rice, daughter of Dr. Charles W. Rice, who joined the Army as a surgeon in 1836 and came to Texas in defense of her liberty and I am the wife of H.S. Stapp, an old Texan, who came to Texas in the year 1833 and served his country in every crisis. He stood guard at 16, belonged to the Rangers in 1845, and was a true patriot for his country, an honest man. Well, I must crave your mercy and go back again to 1836 and tell why the twin sisters were named after my twin sister and myself. In the beginning of the year 1836, the Medical College of Ohio met at Cincinnati to take a course of lectures under Professors Krupp, Eberly, Buster, Black, and other great lights in medical science. They were settling a point. The northern physician asserted that a southern physician could not practice in the north, and the southern physician asserted that the northerners could not practice south, as the climate was so different that what would cure in one section would kill in the other and they settled it by meeting in Cincinnati and taking a course of lectures. My father, Dr. Charles W. Rice, 
went north in the beginning of the year to take a course also. Among my father's friends was a gentleman by the name of Lewis Allen, who lived with my father, a refined, true Christian gentleman, and my father loved him as their characters assimilated. In the latter part of 1836, Mr. Lewis Allen was made a captain, and the ladies of Cincinnati bought the cannon and presented it to the company, and Colonel Lewis Allen, my father's old friend, named the cannon after myself and twin sister. Captain Allen went to Mexico with his company in, I think, the latter part of 1836, was a brave man and was made colonel, and when he returned to New Orleans, the ladies presented him with a sword and gave him a public dinner. God help him, I say, wherever he is, is the prayer of this old veteran Texas lady. The old, old cannon did its duty well, and lies disabled and worn out at Galveston. They did their duty well, but useless now is the writer of these old-time reminiscences. Now, my friend, the post, put these old-time events that happened, which are not quite eighty, but still old enough to remember. Very respectfully, Elizabeth M. Stapp. So that settles the question of how the cannons got their name and who the twin sisters were. This article, named The Search for the Twin Sisters by C. David Pomeroy, Jr., is one of the best accounts out there. It's titled The Search for the Twin Sisters. He writes, The following abstract is based on a speech I gave in 2010. To my knowledge, it is the only current speech or article on the topic. As you can tell from the title, I have not found the twin sisters, but like hundreds, nay, thousands before me, I am looking for them. Let me see a show of hands of who in this room are looking for the twin sisters or are thinking about looking. It's like looking for the Holy Grail. Every true-blooded Texan wants the twin sisters found. What a discovery that would be. What is fascinating to me about the search is all of the theories. One, which cannon were the twins? Two, what did they look like? And three, what happened to them? I'm sure that you have heard all or most of these stories, but I hope to organize and dismiss most of them tonight. The predominant story is that they were manufactured in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1835 and shipped to Texas, where they were delivered to the Texian army at Gross's Plantation. From there, the twins traveled to San Jacinto Battleground, where they were instrumental in the defeat of the Mexican general Santa Ana. Afterwards, they were used in various ceremonies and celebrations. When Texas became a state in the Union, the twins were sent to the federal arsenal at Baton Rouge, Louisiana. When the southern states seceded from the Union, Texas asked Louisiana to return the twins. The twins were found, refurbished, and shipped to Galveston, where they participated in the Battle of Galveston in 1863. After the war, they were seen in Houston in July of 1865, and then a month later in Harrisburg. Supposedly, they were buried in Harrisburg by Confederate soldiers at that time. This deathbed statement from the last living man to see the cannons is the most valuable clue we have as to the cannons' whereabouts. It's titled, Death Claims Last Survivor of Little Band That Buried Twin Sisters. When Death Sealed the Lips of Dr. Henry North Graves of Dallas, Tuesday morning, the last hope of patriotic Texans to recover the twin sisters, two cannon, relics of the Texas Republic, and later of the Civil War, was abandoned. The last survivor of the group of five men who buried the relics during the Civil War, that they might not fall into the hands of federal troops 
and be turned against the sons of those who had cherished them for the part they played in gaining Texas's independence, breathed his last Tuesday morning at 8.30, without designating the place where the cannon were buried. The twin sisters, gifts to the Texas Republic by a Women's Society of Cincinnati, Ohio, were buried in the vicinity of Harrisburg, Texas, during the latter days of the Civil War. During the Civil War, the twin sisters were in possession of a party of 72 men who garrisoned Galveston Island. Hard-pressed by the Yankees, Dr. Graves, with three other soldiers and a servant, slipped them from the garrison during the dead of the night and carried them to the vicinity of Harrisburg, where they were buried in a field. Dr. Graves was the last survivor of the party. Only recently, Dr. Graves expressed a desire that he would live long enough to make a trip to Harrisburg and aid in recovering the twin sisters. Patriotic Texas organizations have endeavored for years to have the cannon dug up and placed at the state capitol at Austin. But on account of his health, Dr. Graves has not been able to make the trip and lead the searchers. During the Confederate reunion in Houston last year, Dr. Graves escorted a group of veterans to the field, where the guns are concealed, but made no effort to determine the exact spot where they were buried. Dr. Graves intended to make a search for the cannon if financial aid could be extended him, and plans were being made to introduce a resolution in the Texas legislature at the time of his death, asking for the necessary appropriation. It sounds to me like Dr. Graves purposely held back giving away the location of the buried cannons, with hopes that he could receive some remuneration but he died before that could happen. At some point he did give up the information that the location of the buried cannons was marked by three trees and a particular setting of stones. So that's the first and most likely clue as to the location of the twin sisters. Historians are also debating other theories, like this one. In June of 1836, General Rusk sent the twin sisters to reinforce Goliad, the twin sisters, being of brass and light weight, were consequently dispatched to Bahia. In crossing a creek some forty miles from Bahia, the twin sisters, as this story goes, were mired and caught in quicksand and could not be extricated. The expedition reached Bahia in July or August. However, there are official Ordnance Department reports on the twin sisters in 1840 and twice in 1841, which renders this theory a remote possibility. Another theory one lost on the 1841 Santa Fe expedition. However, research has shown that this was one of the six cannons purchased from Springfield, Massachusetts, and that arrived in Texas in the fall of 1840. Again, a very remote possibility. Three, reclaimed from the Colorado River. No details as to date, location, by whom, and where are they now. And this theory. After the Civil War, one of the Cincinnati sisters was seen near the land office in Austin in 1871. This seems to be a credible sighting, since there was an etching stating that this was the gift of the citizens of Cincinnati. If this is true, and there are no sightings after 1872, then maybe the twin sisters are somewhere in Austin, possibly in a government warehouse, and forgotten. A man named S.O. Young said he saw them about 1860 in Market Square in Houston, with kids playing on them. He said they were used only on ceremonial occasions. Young identified the marking on the cannon as the name of the manufacturer on the butt of the tube and the dedication of from Cincinnati just forward of the touch hole on the top of the tube. He went on to say that he saw one of the sisters near the land office in 1871-72 and confirmed the inscription. In conclusion, that theory, if correct, would fly in the face of Graves' statement that he and a couple of other men 
buried the cannons. Most people believe that Henry North Graves, his servant Joe, and four other Confederate soldiers were the last to see the twins. They dragged the guns into the woods. They were 880 pounds, each one of them, and buried them along a bayou. Graves returned in 1895, 1905, and 1920, and was unable to locate the area because so much had changed in Harrisburg. Most searches have been in Harrisburg, and all have been unproductive, thus far. The guess is that the twins are buried in a northern direction from the old G.H.&.H. depot, which was located near the intersection of Manchester and Kellogg Streets, in Harrisburg. Graves said they were coming from Galveston, and only the G.H.&.H. railroad runs from Galveston. There is a place where two rail lines cross, the G.H.&.H. and the old B.B.B. and C., and now an interesting story about Numa's search for the twin sisters. Most of you are familiar with the author Clive Cussler. He founded Numa, which stands for National Underwater and Marine Agency. This very active outfit has been working very hard to preserve our maritime heritage, and they have uncovered dozens and dozens of lost ships that were important to our maritime history. On their website, concerning the twin sisters, they write, Search for Sam Houston's twin sisters. The two iron six-pounder cannon, funded and cast in Cincinnati, Ohio, by Texas independent sympathizers and used by Houston's army with great effect on the field at San Jacinto, have curiously meant far more to most Texans than the exploits of their entire navy. The story of how they were smuggled down the Mississippi through New Orleans as hollowware and watched over by Dr. Rice, accompanied by his twin daughters Elizabeth and Eleanor, and their battlefield description by both sides is well documented. For events surrounding their later fate and burial, I have included two newspaper accounts by Mamie Wynne Cox, a reporter for the Houston Chronicle in the early 1920s, and a Houston Chronicle magazine article by Ken Hammond of 1986. These pretty much tell the story of the twin sisters and how they were hidden by a group of Confederate war veterans led by Dr. Henry Graves, who were returning home after the Civil War. Wayne Gronquist and I became interested in the missing cannon during our search in Galveston for the Zavala. The research was begun, and in April of 1987, we returned to Texas and began looking for the cannon at Harrisburg. Tony Bell, the Ross family, Gronquist, Bob Esbenson, Dana Larson, and several other people gave it their best shot. I am most grateful of their kind help and efforts. We also teamed up with Richard Harper and his group, who had been searching for the twin sisters for several years. The big problem is that Dr. Graves did not say what direction he and his buddies took when they stole the cannon and pushed them off into the night. Most of the many searchers favor the northeast, since this approaches the nearest bayou where Graves claimed they threw the gun carriages. Harper believes a report from one of the Confederates that stated they buried the cannon a hundred yards north of the Valentine House, which Harper determined once sat on the southwest corner of Elm and Colorado Streets. This whole northeast section is a disaster. Over the years, Bray's Bayou had been dredged, and the ground a good three blocks inland has been filled in some areas to a depth of ten feet with all sorts of junk and debris, making a solid magnetometer search terribly difficult. So if the cannon lie in this area, they're several feet deeper than when Graves buried them. We took a completely different tack in 87. 
One of Cox's reports stated that a Mr. Milby owned the land where Graves thought the cannon rested. Through the Ross family, the grandson of the man who knew Graves was contacted. Interestingly, the Milbys still own the same parcels of land as they did in the 1920s. This acreage was to the southeast. Much of it was still open and was used for horse pastures, but after an extensive search with the Schoenstedt gradiometers, we came up dry. This attempt ended our first expedition to Harrisburg. We intend to return in March of 88. This time we will be led by Connie Young of Enid, Oklahoma, a psychic who seems to have a pretty good handle on the events. We shall see. Whatever the outcome, I will simply add that expedition's report to this one. Note here at 1001, I can't find any record of the Numa expedition returning in 1988. They had dozens and dozens of searches going on, and this one was probably down on the list. Plus it was a land search, not their expertise. Some other details that have arisen. It was interesting to find that William Francis Picayune Smith, a Brazos River trader located in the Tenex Titlan area of Burleson County, was enlisted as a secret agent for the Texas cause. The mission was to raise funding for the forging and supply of two iron field pieces from the Friends of Texas supporters in Cincinnati. Departing mid-October from Cole Settlement in Washington County, Picayune Smith arrived in Cincinnati just prior to November 11th. He arranged a meeting at the courthouse on the following Thursday evening, the purpose of which was to provide further information respecting Texas, and then, if the meeting should be disposed to assist their brethren in Texas, such measures may be digested as may seem proper in so good a cause. He gave a very passionate speech that night and came immediately to the point. Gentlemen, I appear before you this evening for the purpose of calling your attention to the present situation of your brethren in Texas, with the expectation that you will assist me in raising funds to purchase a pair of field pieces to take to Texas to assist in maintaining the rights and privileges you here enjoy. Texas stands alone, and will have it or sink in the contest. The Cincinnati leaders responded by approving resolutions to assist the Texian request, and then assigning key citizens in each ward to carry out the objectives. The cannons were forged and mounted by the Tatum brothers, Willis and Henry, at the Phoenix Foundry. Miles Greenwood, at his foundry, cast six barrels of eight-ounce iron balls, grape shot, and presented them as his donation. The guns being cast and cooled were sent to fire engine manufacturers of Benjamin Chase and Jeffrey Seymour for the boring of the barrels, then returned to the Tatum brothers. Committee members David T. Disney, William Curry, and Robert T. Lytle called upon Francis Cassatt, a well-known and established blacksmith and carriage maker, to make carriages for the two guns. He moved quickly. The carriages, rough but substantial and well-ironed, were on hand the morning of December 30, 1835, with carriages painted a bright red and the wheels a stroke of blue. The six barrels of grape had already been shipped to the Tatum foundry. The cannon then mounted by Cassette and the Tatum brothers. There was a brass plaque mounted to the side and an inscription on the barrel that read, Presented to the Republic of Texas, by the ladies of Cincinnati. This footnote and very prolific story emerged in April of 1893 and was released by the Daughters of the Republic of Texas in an effort to discover the location of the famous Twin Sisters Cannon. This was a full account given by Dr. Henry North Graves, which, as we said in the very beginning, 
provides extra detail to a partial story that you've already been given. Here's how Dr. Henry North Graves got involved in the burying of the cannon. He provided these details to the Galveston Daily News reporter, and this is how they read. After Lee's surrender, Walter L. Mann's regiment, which had been stationed at Galveston Island, left the island. Dr. Graves was assigned to Company K of Mann's regiment. At Harrisburg, the soldiers were persuaded by General Magruder and Governor Pendleton Murrah to return to Galveston and hold for five days. The attempt was to reach special terms with the Union blockading boat, the Penobscot. At the end of the fifth day, only 75 soldiers remained, and as the attempt had failed, the soldiers returned to Harrisburg with Magruder and Murrah and disbanded in early June of 1865. Upon disembarking at the depot in Harrisburg, Graves and his close Confederates noted among cannon that had been unloaded on the platform the baby guns which they recognized as the twin sisters. This motivated the Confederate group to form a plan on that dark, drizzling day the second week in June to ease their anguish over their loss. The Confederates that took part were Dr. Henry North Graves, just 19 years old at that time, John Barnett, Ira Pruitt, Saul J. Thomas, and Jack Taylor. In the late 1880s, one of the Confederate soldiers searched for the cannon and was aided by a local Harrisburg ex-Confederate soldier, Francis Bailey. Afterward, the soldier wrote Bailey a letter providing details he had remembered and confirmed such. In 1895, the letter reads, during the United Confederate Veterans Reunion in Houston, three of the group, hence Dr. Graves, John Barnett, and Saul J. Thomas, reunited. They took sheets of paper and each drew the situation as they had remembered with the identification trees, and the papers were compared. They were found identical. Dr. Graves and John Barnett then visited the site and found three of the marker trees and two of the stones, but failed to locate the cannon. Dr. Graves returned in 1920 at the invitation of the Houston Chronicle to attend the United Confederate Veterans Reunion in Houston. They traveled in a touring car, and at length the lot of the Dr. Valentine old home was located. From this point, and the depot, Graves estimated that he could approximate the location at least within an acre. And the arrival at the depot seemed to have invigorated the aging Dr. Graves, giving him the strength to tramp over rough ground and to recall distinguishing landmarks. But even with that information, they could not find the cannons. In 1899, Dr. Graves, realizing that he was the last survivor of the group that buried the cannon, wrote with a heavy heart, In our love for them and our state pride, hid them from the desecrating hands of the despoiler. We did for the little pets what at the time we would gladly have done to each of us, buried them from the face of their conquerors. One of the most persistent searchers was author Carol Lewis, who wrote The Treasures of Galveston Bay. He searched passionately for the twin sisters and resolved that they could never be found after several years. He made a serious plea for others to pick up their pursuit, however. He did list in his book the common attributes or facts as existed consistently at that time. That the group rolled the cannons to the bayou. That the group took off the carriages and sank them into the bayou. That the group rolled the barrels about 400 yards into the woods. And that the group buried them in a shallow grave. Another clue provided by graves that was common knowledge was that the cannon lie within half a mile or so from the depot. Lewis was aware of this, but he didn't include it in his book. 
Some people took issue with that, saying that one cannot roll cannon barrels 400 yards through weeds and heavy brush without extreme difficulty. Cannon barrels have trunnions, which protrude from both sides of the barrel, and provide the mounting pivot point for the cannon barrels for the carriage, making it very difficult to roll even once, much less for 400 yards. Interesting to note as well that four or five pine trees surrounding the cannon were hacked to carefully mark the spot. Also, as mentioned, they observed stones in the close area and nearby, thus to be referenced as an additional locating marker for the cannon's burial site. As we've said, they found two of the three stones, but still the barrels weren't found. Here is the best summary of known facts that exist. One, the cannon were buried 100 yards north of the gate of the Dr. Valentine home, which is a very exacting fact. Two, three of the hacked trees were found, which aligns to the 1903 ROW plat, which included the boundary line of the previously cleared trees, cross-confirming one, that the cannon were buried 100 yards north of the gate of the Dr. Valentine home. Three, two of the stones were found. This required years of rationalization to conclude what type of stone, where the stones originated, who placed the stones, and the purpose of the stones. The location of the close-by stones were in a very close proximity to items 1 and 2 just mentioned. 4. Once the location of the old Dr. Valentine home was found, Dr. Graves estimated he could approximate the location to within an acre. Not exacting, but cross-confirming. This final entry in the story is taken from the TSHA, the Texas State Historical Association, and provides the rest of the story with regard to the missing twin sisters. And now, a final twist to this story, one that you probably hoped you would never hear. A brief statement in the September 1, 1865 edition of the Houston's Tri-Weekly Telegraph reported, Two brass cannon were found yesterday, buried, about three miles from this city. Very possibly, within a few months of their burial, the same guns were dug up, and therefore nothing was there to be found in the decades after that. Author James Woodrick has proposed that these recovered cannons were bronze six-pounders of the Houston Artillery Company and were then shipped east in the winter of 1865-66. There must be some records from the Houston Artillery Company as to the destination and nature of that shipment, and that's for you listeners to find out. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Be sure to check out some of our other 1001 podcasts, and I'll mention one of them today. And that's 1001 Greatest Love Stories, where you shouldn't let the title fool you. Right now, you'll find Anna Sewell's classic Black Beauty, written in 1877. The book, told from a horse's point of view, woke up an entire generation to the way horses were being abused and mistreated mostly in the name of style. And there's other great classics there, too, such as Anne of Green Gables and its sequel, Anne of Avon Lee. And my favorite of the bunch, Marie by H. Ryder Haggard, a guy's story if there ever was one, that takes us back to the Boer Wars and a young Englishman who falls in love with a Dutch girl in the wilds of Africa. It's terrific drama you would never expect to find in a podcast title, 1001 Greatest Love Stories. But that's where I put it. And Marie, by H. Ryder Haggard, is one of the best stories I've ever read. Just one small part of all the entertainment that we've offered here at 1001 Stories Network over the past eight years. Thank you so much for joining us 
Hope you enjoyed this story, and there are many more to come. We we always appreciate your sharing our show, and we appreciate reviews. And we'll return again next Sunday at noon, everyone. Until then, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.